Hello, I'm Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiasts Podcast. The Two Enthusiasts Podcast. From newsstand to kickstand, we cover everything in the two-wheel world. <laughs> Except wankles, because that sounds dirty. <laughs> wow. That was... And you just read that off your phone too, like I you had that, a prepared I, I, statement. Yeah, I, I um, just typing away, like, oh, this is my, this is my, deep, my deep thought time. And get you don't good... think wankles? There's no wankle that we would cover. <laughs> I don't think we can get through a show saying wankle over and over. Again. I like wankles. I'm really a big fan of wankles. I would wankle all the time if I had a wankle. <laughs> he's he's a wankle short of a rotary engine. <laughs> Uh, i guarantee you from this moment forward you're not gonna be able to talk about a rotary motor without laughing a little bit to yourself a little chuckle be like oh that jensen bueller he's a funny son of a bitch wankles get my kickstand up you know what i'm saying Uh, you know, it's funny you say that because a friend of mine, uh, Sean Nguyen, who's a, a local builder and aficionado of motorcycles and cars and whatnot here in, in, uh, in Oregon, he's down in Salem area. He texted me a picture of a Hercules that some person had Hercules, bought. Hercules, Hercules, Hercules. I'm so glad you know what that is. <laughs> You're a 90s kid for sure. Uh what, what movie is that? Uh, Nutty Professor. It, Eddie Murphy. Eddie line. Murphy. Nutty Professor. It, is it Nutty Professor? It is Nutty Professor. It's one of the ones where Eddie it's Murphy's first every one. single character. And he was like, he was, that's <laughs> when he was a very large mother. And he's like, Hercules, Hercules. Oh, so funny. Anyway, Hercules, rotary engine, a wankle. Well, I would want to get my <laughs> wank onto that thing, right? And he's like, it's for sale. And they, dude, all of me wants it. Every little bit of me wants to wankle that thing all over the place. And I'd can't do it right now but geez that would be so cool to have a, a fucking rotary engine motorcycle hot they run hot because it's essentially a three-stroke it's, it's a awesome. constant it's awesome it's, I, what was get the, it three strokes right you know what i'm talking about three stroke and <laughs> wankle the um the hot. one that i've always lusted over is the norton what is it the nrv or 588 the 588 yeah yeah that thing's badass it weighs like seven pounds and yeah. makes 180 they horsepower. were good looking and if you look up the picture of this 588 norton rotary the look up the ones from the late 80s early 90s was when they were racing in the f1 series ttf1 i think that's what it was called and mainly it was uh isle of man so i think robert dunlop was the main one i can't remember it was a couple of the other names from that era that are just rad any pictures of them hauling ass on that bike at the Isle of Man are awesome. There was the later version that they actually tried to make into like, a, even within the past five or 10 years, yeah. right? Yeah. And that was pretty looking and all that, but that original, the OG black one with the, that um, has this really cool paint job, very simple black, white, silver paint job. A- absolutely amazing bike. Would love to see that in person and listen to it because they have a really unique sound. Again, being like a three-stroke or, you know, rotary. I think... Uh, I'm trying to emulate the rotary sound. Can you hear that? that blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, I think Creighton. Is it Creighton? 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 One of those... A little boutique firm in, in the UK is trying to keep that project alive. Yeah. But I haven't heard too much out of them. I think that's one of those things like... You can call them up and maybe you can get a bike, but... Yeah. Really out there. Yeah, that would be a tough one. I'm sure the emissions... Is you know you're not going to Euro for a rotary engine motorcycle without a complete redesign period, so you're not going to make the production. It would have to be a track. You don't think only. so? Uh, that's my guess. Knowing how is Mazda still messing around? Barely with though. They do, but it's I mean it's not easy. 
Apex seals are a thing. They're difficult to seal. Seal. <laughs> that was the, well. I mean, that's the big yeah. issue is the seals eventually go and it just right. kind of shits itself and yeah. motors only last like I, I think like Mazda's motors are only lasting like seventy, eighty thousand miles. Yeah. Like that. Before you have to do a bunch of stuff to them and then you know they're they're awesome when they turbocharge them. There's so many reasons why they're wicked, but they're kind of like brightly lit candles lit at both ends. Wicked and bright and awesome for only a certain amount of time. So motorcycle. Oh. Suzuki RE5, there's one that roams through southeast Portland and it's original. It's beat to shit, but it's original. It even has that. Have you ever, do you remember going to the bank when you were a kid and they'd have those things you put into a sliding tube? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. I mean, like that, old buildings have those the too. The dashboard of one of those RE5 rotaries looks like one of those. Exactly. Like you're just opening that up to get your little note out or your bank check or your the cash. It's really strange. They're neat, they're neat bikes. So there's one dude that rolls around in east, east of uh, Portland with one. I haven't seen it in a while, but it's cool shit. Well, it probably exploded. It might have. It might be dead. He's, he's just You're he's not, still in the burn ward recovering because it just exploded <laughs> all over him. Yeah. There's no getting Apex seals for that, I'm sure. Like, I I can't imagine that you... Well, you never know. You never know. You might be able to buy your new laser water jet cutter thingy that you were showing me. What is it oh, called? The Wazer. The Wazer. That's a cool little piece of kit, though. I would... I'm a, So, what we're talking about is a... Um, I wouldn't say it's consumer-grade water jet cutter machine but it's it's definitely far more affordable than some of the stuff that's out well it's a lot more affordable than like the industrial stuff but it's made for hobbyists custom builders small design shops things like that and you can take a plate of metal who knows how thick i guess maybe you could specify in your article but it says in the thing like yeah they i think they cut i think it cut a lot of things it just comes down to how much time it's going to take but like i think a quarter inch of aluminum was like an inch per minute or something yeah like that. whatever so if you could put a quarter inch piece of aluminum you could put pretty much basic fabrication sheet metal stuff into it to make shapes and or cut out names and stuff like that you know, whatever for us on the motorcycle side all kinds of applications for that to make bracketry whether it be to hang a radiator or to um uh, you know well, just think of like instruments like a things bike like that. builder and you needed to make a yep. exhaust bracket or whatever and you know if you had the CAD design, you can... Yep. That and a box break, and you'd be able to bend it, and yeah. you'd be set. It would be easy. And you can make 10 of them, and it probably wouldn't cost you much time. Sure. Sure. There's horses for courses, though. It's one thing to do a sprocket, right? Or it's another... Which, to, is, which is also a sprocket you would not want to... You shouldn't be making a sprocket on, I, on I was a about water to say, jet. If somebody tells me that they can make a sprocket in a fab shop, I'm not going to use that sprocket. If, if well, I'm just thinking, because like, usually sprockets are just stamped out. Yeah, there's but just a big machine there's just some cranking subtleties those. to the the root structure of where the chain goes and where the sprocket teeth are. That actually takes a fair amount of engineering to get right. And if you see how many of these stupid sprocket manufacturers with shitty product that, that annihilate themselves quickly, there's legitimacy in buying high-quality sprockets, for sure, like Renthal sprockets. Oh, just getting the... Uh, you mean, like, getting the tolerances? Yeah, and the shapes. Yeah. are The shapes are real subtle. The same with gears. The... Uh, something I got to learn a lot of when at Motos's because we were dealing with a lot of gear issues, whether that be the gear... Sh- can you imagine putting gears on the ends of crankshafts to drive the crankshafts against each other? That was a really gnarly thing. Then bevel gears to take the power out, gears in the transmission, larger gears to tie the two crankshafts together. Oh my gosh, there were so many gears. You got geared up for it. We had we were really geared up nicely done. <laughs> yeah, we were getting 
Yeah, we got down to the root That's of it. That's one for Jensen. Oh, yeah. So we, uh, ha- I got to see a lot. And I got to go. Actually, there's a bunch of companies here in Oregon that do this type of stuff, mainly that fed the uh, the uh, logging industry. So big stuff. And we got to see some huge gear hobbing machines. In fact, there's one blocks away from Motocorsa in North Portland. It's pretty cool. Anyway, so, uh, so it's just making a sprocket. Sounds simple, but it's not. But making a you know a piece of flat metal bracket that takes two bolts at the top on your frame to a bolt on your exhaust, and it's something you would normally make out of aluminum that you go buy at Home Depot. Yeah, it would be way better and probably uh, uh, way better looking, right? But would you want to spend ten thousand dollars? How much was that? What machine did it? Say? Well, so they're doing like a Kickstarter thing, and I think the original, like if you're one of the very first people to sign up, I think it was thirty six hundred, and then, yeah. then the next echelon's like forty five. Yep. And then I think like if you that's just, close. If you just glom on now, they're shooting for like a six thousand dollar price point. And I can see that if you're a job shop and you 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 can amortize that cost over you know ten years of use or five years or whatever you would do in your business plan, it's similar to what a um, rapid prototype machine. So the we had a rapid prototype machine at SIS, but it was a one of the early older uh, styles that had powder and that would lay down a layer of powder and then put CA glue, which is essentially super glue. I forget what CA stands for. It is a long methyl ethyl death name. So CA glue would go in the spots where it was going to start forming a, a shape and it would just be layer upon layer upon layer. And it would take overnight to make a part that was probably, you know, four inches square if you, you know, but it might be it's like OG because now it's like lasers and oh, it's, yeah, it's completely different, and- completely different, but it would work for us to get a shape. Right. Like if I needed to then take that uh, coolant passage that was an exit from the engine to the radiator and I needed to have that figure out would it work on the bike if we had, you know, this drain here and this bolt here and whatever, uh, that worked well for us to do that. But then if we really wanted to make something hardcore, like say the valve covers that we use, which were rapid prototype plastic, no bullshit. Um, and they would work for X amount of dyno runs before they'd start warping and leaking. That would come from a place back east, probably Detroit area, of course, because that was where a lot of the rapid prototype was being used by the big four. Um, and it worked amazingly well. And then we got into stuff that was like metal impregnated, uh, like aluminum and titanium impregnated. I never quite understood the specifications on that stuff or where it could be used. We had a couple of pieces that were done that way, but they were hideously expensive. Interesting stuff, though. And again, now we're at the point where I've seen friends now that are like hobbyists, engineers that have bought the 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 maker bot or whatever. Whatever it is, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, fairly cheap additive three D three D printers, rapid prototype machines that have decent printing resolutions. I don't know if they would be, you know, finished enough to to be high quality, considered to be high quality, but you know, that there's a cost. There's a price point for all this. And that's the same thing with this with the Wazer. There's a price point where it's like you don't need to buy the hundred thousand dollar industrial water jet. You're not making that many parts, you're not making that many things, but maybe you need a small one because this thing like fits on like a, a shelf or whatever. And that can be something that, you know, you use in your shop. It's the same thing with the three D printers and like we rode the Altas. I know the Altas have a 3D printer, sure. uh, rapid prototype. And for a long time, a lot of their pieces were rapid prototype or some of the pieces, I should say. So it's interesting. It's interesting to see, like, hear you talk about it and just see, like, almost like a decade later, how that technology has improved in terms of quality and speed and also in price. Yep. And I just expect the same thing from 
water jet technology and i'm surprised we haven't seen it as much for cnc but i think that may yeah. just because it's so special yeah you add another dimension holy crap it does take a lot more knowledge and understanding of of how to how to machine parts oh I, that, that's a whole nother show i yeah. could get into that even not knowing that much about it i saw so much from working at graves and then working at sis uh back to back holy crap the, the stuff that i got to watch these people make whether it be machining weldment whatever it was a, a, a cool thing all right, let's let's dig in. I, I feel bad for having completely hijacked. Like that was not even part of the deal, but that's the beauty of the Two Enthusiasts podcast. Oh wait, did we go down a rabbit hole? Huh. Shocking. What do you know? What a weird thing. It's been actually a pretty good week for me. This has been. And you're all excited. This is yeah. This is like the start of the season. I wouldn't say it's the Super Bowl yet, but we're in the playoffs. Yeah. Like, okay. Intermont. This year we have Intermont, and every year we have Eichma for the two big trade shows for the motorcycle industry. And we're just now starting to see kind of some of the more minor bikes coming to light, some spy photos coming out, which is kind of BS, but whatever. And uh, yeah, we're just starting to whet our appetite for for what the 2017 model year is going to look like. So saw a few things this week that I wanted to talk to you about. Let's go right into it. The spy photos, the Honda CBR 1000 RR, which looks like it was actually taken in Croatia. Is that some random track in Croatia? The name of which I don't even know. Hmm. I've already forgotten it. Hmm. But it's kind of a weird spot. It looks like it was doing some sort of filming for probably a PR spot, and uh, it's it's out there. But the the interesting thing for me, at least, is it's pretty much the old bike with new fairings. Yeah, I mean it's it's, it's identifiable pretty quick if you if you've looked at the that frame and engine combo a few times you're like okay that's pretty much the same thing that that ain't no v4 stuck in there at all oh no definitely not a v4 it's definitely an inline four but like you can start looking at where the rear sets bolt up where the subframe bolts in where the swing arm pivot is i did a little graphic on anr um showing just exactly like here's are the exact direct same things on on the two bikes that you can still see it's funny that like it uses the same wheels as the current generation CBR. Like there's there's a lot of mechanical stuff that's still the same. Yeah. Uh, different different fairings. The, th- the thing that got me the most is there's if you look at the the fairings, it's a lot less fairing near the gas tank. Yeah. And if you look on the CBR chassis, there's there's a second hole where the radiator tubes kind of come back into the engine. That's usually covered up by the fairing, but now it's exposed. And all they did is they took like a, it looks like they just took a piece of metal and just welded it over the hole so you didn't have like this hole like staring you in the face, which I thought was pretty funny. I was just like, oh, you didn't even, like you didn't even like try to make a new frame. You didn't even like try to like change the castings or whatever. You just like welded a, a little plate over all the uh, the frames you probably have stuck in the warehouse. Yeah, well, that that's the deal. If you're a manufacturer like this and you're going to, uh, how many thousands do you think they have worldwide? 20, 30,000, maybe? Uh, yeah, that's a fair... Well, per year? Yeah. That's a fair number. I think... Well, remember the R1? It was like 14,000 or something like yeah, that. Yeah. So, for the... Whatever it is, the, the costs, again, amortized over the, the the whole production run, they look at doing a whole nother chassis. Fuck it. Right? Why not just have... Depending on how it looks. Like, I'm not even seeing what you're seeing. I, I'm, I'm looking at the picture now, and I can't quite tell what you're talking about. The, uh, yeah, I, I'm not even seeing it, but I could imagine there's a couple things that, yeah, they just put crap over crap to. It's the same bike. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's the, um, 
the disappointment. I'm sure there's going to be, there's probably going to be an electronic package added to it. There's probably going to be some whistles and bells. Maybe they've massaged that engines to have some more power and not too much because they're using the exact same chassis. So it's not like they're going to dump like 20 more horsepower in there because they would change the chassis if they're going to start doing that. But there could be five, maybe, maybe 10 more horses to be found. But then again, you're 04. So who knows what happens with that? Maybe the, what, what we're seeing is this compromise where the Japanese over the past 10 years post almost 10 years post, uh, uh, uh economy implosion. Yeah. So 10, we're almost at 10 years post recession. And we saw a long time go before we've seen, well, the R6, which we'll talk about in a minute. We're still, we thought there would be an R6 for this year, last year, right? I remember thinking about that a long time ago. The the Honda CBR1000 and the 600, the 600 got a facelift like this. What? Yeah. A couple of years ago, a few years ago, but I mean, everything bottom line has been kind of in stasis. So we're, we might be seeing just enough of like, all right, we have to improve the things at least a little bit year to year or every few years. We, well, might as well just do that without completely retooling. It's been, it's been interesting to watch. So I think, I think to, to back it out for a second, I think listeners need to understand that 2008, 2009, when the recession hit, the Japanese manufacturers were like a turtle, right? They just went completely back into their shells. And <laughs> and some of them did, did it more than others. Kawasaki, I think, kept things up more so than, say, Suzuki, which just literally stopped making bikes. Yamaha production, I think, got reduced by 90% or something crazy like that. Honda did this, did a huge thing. And we're just... We're just now kind of seeing these OEMs like come out of their slumber and it's, it's happening in various stages and happening in varying degrees between the brands. But Honda has been the hardest to deal with because Honda's whole thing, at least Honda, Honda's outward appearance has basically been saying like, Hey, we think the sport bike market is dead. We think the super bike market is dead. We think the super sport market is dead. Like we, we talked about this a few shows ago and they basically said, Hey, we're not coming out with a new CBR 600 RR when it's no longer compliant to sell in Europe. We're not going to replace it anytime soon because it's just, it just costs too much to do it. And then we don't think the market is there. And some of that is very much like a chicken and the egg argument because it's like, well, guys, you haven't, you haven't built any new bikes. Like you are the four major manufacturers in this space and none of you have made new bikes in like the better part of a decade. So you would expect that market to disappear. You would expect uh-huh. sales to like when you're selling a 2016 Gixxer and it's exactly like the 2008 Gixxer, like of course your sales are going to start slumping. Yeah. You know, because a lot of that, a lot of those sales is just repeat customers. It's guys buying the latest and greatest over and over again. Some of it is people that are new to the industry and a Jixer is just a Jixer and that's awesome. And I'll, I'll buy that because I heard Jixers are cool. Yep. They don't, I wouldn't say they don't know any better, but it's just not as important to them. They don't really care if it's 180 horsepower or 200 horsepower or whatever. But there is this kind of like thing, like, and I think Honda's latched onto it the most where they're just like not as motivated or I don't know what the internal issue is but i think it's really it's really apparent here where we've been waiting for a new fireblade which is what they call it in europe we've been waiting for a new cbr 1000 for five years plus we've been told it's been coming for five years plus you know and and Nick, i mean nikki hayden signed a world superbike contract on the idea that there'd be a new bike for him for 2017 and here it is looking just like the old one 
with bold new graphics and bold new fairings. And I look at that and I get, and I think it's a part of the same ethos that got me kind of shitty about the Honda RC 213 VS, the, the MotoGP street bike, where it's that same idea of like, you had an opportunity to come out with something that would be bitching. You're yeah. Honda, yeah. you are big red, you have just the coolest shit squirreled away in your factories and your R&D departments guaranteed and you could just crush it but you decide to take this safest safest most sanitized boring route to something possible yeah and here's what that looks like it's like okay we'll take the bike that we've been trying to sell for the past decade and we'll make some cool fairings and we'll change things here and there and we'll just kind of put electronics on it because you have to now and we've been the last manufacturer to get on board with that and uh, you know it'll be a good bike the yeah. current the current honda is a good bike sure but you know it's funny listening like I, I think back to like like uh john mcginnis was talking at the tt and you know honda dominates pretty well at the tt but they haven't for the last few years and you can kind of tell like john mcginnis is kind of getting more and more frustrated with each passing year because he's just like i went as fast around this course as you humanly can on this bike like what can I do when I'm riding an eight-year-old bike versus, um, you know, the BMW S1000RR is kind of the bike to have right now at, at the TT. Mm-hmm. Um, namely because you can buy factory kit stuff from BMW pretty easily. They have a very good racer support program in that regard. Yeah. But also it's like it's it's been out long enough that it's sorted. It had a really good update in 2015, so it's fresh. It makes great power. It's reliable. It's a bitchin' bike. And Michael Dunlop's destroying people on it. And I think there's a little twinge in, in, in John McGinnis is like, hey, you know, I'm trying to trace Joey's record here. And it'd be nice if um, I was given something a little bit modern to do that with. And I, I can only imagine like he and like Nikki Hayden are probably seeing these spy photos going like full face palm. Like, what the wankler are you guys doing right now? <laughs> these guys are just wankling. And they're just wankling around. <laughs> And, you know, I, and me as like a journalist, like I get a little frustrated, too, because like I'm expecting something whammy, bammy, wow from honda and they just frankly, maybe they're gonna prove you wrong man maybe they they'll come out me. and be wicked well so there is some rumor there is some talk that like this is going to be kind of the peasant bike this is the the bike that's going <laughs> to be been hearing this for fucking years though right yeah but this will be the bike that's affordable it'll be like 14 15 grand and it'll be great and then if you look at the way the regulations are going for a super bike it really does favor homologation specials again and so there is this kind of idea that, okay, well, there will be a 30000 up to $40,000, you know, ultra premium super bike from Honda that could be a V4 and basically just be another watered down version of the MotoGP bike. Sure. That, you know, that'll be the, the, the thing that's really going to be, you know, dropping it like it's hot. Yeah. There's some rumors that'll be next year, which is interesting. There's some rumors that could be later this year. Um, truthfully, if it's next year, I think Honda's going to just, they're going to just take it on the nose this year because it's just another year where it's just, guys, what are you doing? So hopefully hopefully there's more to come. Hopefully Honda can get back to being the fucking juggernaut of this industry that it is or that it was. I don't know. I don't know what verb, I don't know what verb tends to use there. Do you think Honda's still the king of the motorcycle industry or have they lost that by complacency? I wouldn't consider him king at all. I don't have any. There is none. Where it's like a bunch of pawns just kind of leaderless, just going along. And there's no, the Euros are the most interesting, right? The, they they're are. They're not leading the But not by volume. Industry, and- yeah, just by being avant-garde to a point. Some of them are pretty gnarly. 
but even then they're they're not not creating what was created in the 70s by the rest of the industry holy crap i mean that was a time when lots of fascinating things were going down and then in the late 80s honda if you just, i've i've said this on previous shows the late 80s lineup from honda was amazing and there was so much cool stuff that just got you into being in it now i might be jaded but if i'm a new rider looking at at the at the current bikes i'm just not i'm not impressed i don't have any I don't have anything that I lust after unless I'm lusting after a, a Ducati or a BMW or a KTM, right? That for me, um, dirt street, whatever. If I'm reading a magazine, I want something really cool. Triumph, maybe a couple of the things they have. The the ZX, the 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 Cowie ZX. The Cowie's a good bike. I got to ride yeah. that at Laguna. I was impressed with it. It's it's newish. It's uh they updated it for 2015, I believe. Yeah, sure. So I see those as kind of. The the current name in the Jicks are blah. Yamaha, eh. I mean, I don't... I, you don't like the new R1? They're kind of ubiquitous. No, I do. I think it's a great bike. It's obviously the one of the best, period. But it's ugly as all fucking get out. I hate it. <laughs> it is not to stand to the west of time. It doesn't look good as a race bike, which is really depressing. It still has a, a strange... I, I don't know. Cod-like even, feature? Yeah, I don't I don't know. <laughs> whatever. It's ugly. It should look like the MotoGP bike. It doesn't. It looks kind of like a MotoGP bike with a couple of tumors. It's horrible. So that that doesn't excite me as, as somebody that would get excited by design, by look, by by feel. Um, yeah, I don't I don't have that. But I'm, I'm so jaded by the Ducati side. The bikes are pretty, I'm surrounded by beautiful bikes all the time. But there's no there's nothing new. It's like kind of the same old, same old, and I don't I don't know what what you could call an industry leader. They've come out with a bunch of just crap. Like you think about the the what is it? The I don't remember how you call those ones that are like almost like big stand up scooters. The N something or other nine N N five N M series of Honda step through scooter motorcycle things. That one that looks like a Batmobile. Oh yeah, I know. What you're you know about. what I'm talking about? There's a few of these that are come out. D N D N. Well, the DN was a weird one, but then there's an NM. They yep. call it the Integra uh, in Europe. I'm trying Ugh. to think what the, the number name is for here. All of it just makes me queasy. NMX, NM750. Whatever it is. It's all horrible. And and I don't... NM4. I, yeah. I don't have any love for any of that crap. And well, that's the hard part. Like, when, when you name your things just letters and numbers, like, it's the NM4. It's the CBR1000. Like, I feel like you've already missed the point of, like, making a visceral connection with your customer. Yeah, but Ducati did that for decades, and it was fine. So just recently, mm. have they had a Panigale 899. They just had figured out well, when you make a number, well, it has to sound good, like 748, you know, 916, 996. Ducati's naming schemes just really, it's just really like, I feel like they're just kind of being dumb sometimes. That's not the right word, but it's just like, what should we name our superbike? Let's call it superbike. All right, we're gonna make a we're gonna make a Street Fighter model. What do you want to call it? Oh, uh, let's just call it Street Fighter. <laughs> Ten ten ninety eight Street Fighter. Um, yeah, sure. We should make like a big supermoto. What do you want to call it? Uh, not supermotard. Let's call it hypermotard. Everything's just called exactly what it is. Multistrad is about as creative of a name they've come up with in a long time. Dude, scrambler. <laughs> yeah, well, well, let's make a scrambler bike. What do you want to call it? Uh, fuck it. I want to go home. Let's call it Scrambler. Uh, sounds good. Okay, cool. I'll see you in a month because it's August. <laughs> yeah, well, I know that growing up in the early 90s, you knew 
what the F of a Ducati was because it was an 888, an A51, a 900SS, right? But they can do that. And I think there is a bit of, I don't know, is it mechanicalism race it's not it's like racism for motorcycles <laughs> what, what would you call that right where the italians could just do that shit and it's fine right it works f4 mv goes to f4 1000 it works to an extent because if you start naming shit like aprilia does then it just goes the completely other way right? now this is true right okay so back to cbr 1000 r you know what if they there was an issue with naming the bikes hurricane uh, back in the 80s, remember? You like a oh, man. But there was like a legitimate yeah. insurance thing. I'll never forget being a kid before I was into motorcycles and watching a 2020 on Friday night. I'd oh, get home and from Barbara school Walters. and I'd be able to be, oh, good old Barbara. So I'd watch this one show that was highlighting how dangerous these murder cycles were and pointing out it was all crotch rockets and it was Southern California and it was at the height. And that late 80s, when there was a lot of people doing a lot of crazy stuff, uh, street racing, run rampant, whatever. And uh, I, I mean, as a kid, that just uh, that was titillating. Like, that's probably one of the things that, that made me interested, even though I, I got wasn't. got your kickstand up is what you're saying? Dude, my kickstand was all the way up right? <laughs> against the stop. So the uh, that, that well, I think, was a problem. And Ninja, stick. they stuck with Ninja. But Honda gave gave away. They said, "Fuck it, we can't." See, I think I think that might be the point in time when Honda just started losing its its soul. I was going to say say balls, but soul might be might be it too. It's just this like it's like oh we got to change the name because it oh it's called the Hurricane and people don't like it and oh we were going to make a really bitchin' MotoGP bike for the street, but instead we just you know phoned it in and. Yeah, well, let's just sell them the same CBR for the last fucking, I don't yeah, know, 30 sure. something years. No, Sochiro. Well, I don't di- want to sell 600 Super Sports anymore. Yeah, like, Sochiro yeah. died in what, 91 or 92? And and with him died Honda. I think, and I think there's there's good argument to be made. That, there. So it took a while for all of the cool, interesting things that had been done by all the cool, interesting people that he had hired or by force had been hired because of him. Uh, in this, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, then it took a while for it to all just blanch out into this miasma of mediocrity that Honda has become so sadly over the years. There's, there's something in the design process going on there that, like, just it's just like the black hole where everything goes and, and dies because, like, <laughs> But like, but if you listen to us, we're really making it. Really, that sucks. <laughs> race to the bottom, man. Are we racing? Is, are we winning the race to the bottom right now? I think today. I think we, today we are. But that's that's the problem that I have with with the spy photos of this bike because it brings it. It is a jumping off point for everything bad and everything that is wrong with Honda right now, and 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 take that to a larger extent of the Japanese manufacturers. Because look at like. Look at the Mugen bike from the the TT Zero race of the TT. Yeah. Right? Secret, you know, there's a lot of rumors it's a secret Honda project, and I think that's totally fair. Yep. I think it takes away a little bit of what the Mugen guys are doing, because I think there there's some people in Mugen that are doing some pretty cool shit, and Mugen's a cool organization, but Honda's out there pulling some strings on some level. I think that's just like, that's a wicked project to be working on. That's... That's cool. That gets me excited. I look at like the the Honda RCE concept that they showed a few years ago at the uh, Tokyo Motorcycle was Show. Was that the one that looked kind of retro? Yeah, that yeah, was cool. How bitching is that? Yeah, sure. How fucking bitching is that? And it's like, okay, so there's 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 a pulse somewhere in this organization that can make cool, engaging, cutting edge stuff, 
And there's somewhere along that line, there's just some guy or girl who is just meh and just <laughs> killing things before they reach the public. Yeah. And it's really, it's really a drag. Um, I want to get off of this and see if we can't get, get a little bit more positive. You need a little wankle to get off of this one? I need to get, I got to wankle myself out of this hole here. <laughs> that, that might be phrasing. Are we not doing phrasing? <laughs> phrasing. That's how you get ants. That's how you get ants. <laughs> Lana! <laughs> All right. Let's get out of the hole and do another hole. <laughs> oh, man. Send your email to two enthusiasts at asphaltandrubber.com. Uh, so this came out today, actually. So we're being a little topical, but the Yamaha is starting to hint, which there's well, what they're starting to hint is very much what I believe is the new R6, the 2017 Yamaha YZF R6. Yep. And the teaser is suggesting that we'll see this on the very first media day at the Intermont show. But I've been hearing about this from Yamaha people for a couple months now. And I think we're actually going to end up probably doing some sort of press launch at Sonoma or Sears Point, as the cool kids call it. Yeah. Which could be fun. I think that'd be a really good track for a 600. Sure. Um, not too many details, but we did get an audio peek at it in the little teaser video and to my ear and i think your ear as well quentin it sounds like it is a inline four flat plane engine yeah but the thing is that first the first running through the rev range sound a little gurgle it it almost has like a possibility and when you think of all those little teeny little 600 cc pistons moving if it was a cross plane like the r1 there is this bizarre chance that at high RPM, the frequencies and whatnot would would wash it out, and it would still sound very inline force like. But then at low end, it would have that rushy. You mean cross plane? Cross plane sound. No, at the top end, it would sound like a flat plane. Right. That's what I mean. But it's an inline four. It's not. It's absolutely. There's, there's no in doubt in your mind that it's an inline four. So yeah. Let's just get because there was a rumor. That is not a triple. There was a rumor that it was yeah. going to be a triple, yeah. and I really think we can put that to bed. Which I, I'm disappointed by because I really thought it would be. That'd be cool. And it would go into the Triumph six seven five style, and it would play to all the other bikes that they've had recently that are triples, like the the FC oh nine, the FC oh nine, right? So that. And then the weird twins that they've had. Anyway, it would be finally them who are, they seem to be a, a, a woken company. They don't seem to be, even though I don't necessarily like their products, uh, I'm not, I don't hate them. They're all at least something interesting. Like that triple is neat, the twin. And I hate twins, but you know what? If you're going to do a parallel twin, they got it right. It seems to be good. Well, we the, saw that um, that FC09 based adventure bike uh, that I posted too. Oh, which, it's really cool looking. It made the FZ09, which is a gawky, ugly, shitty looking motorcycle yeah, not to me. A, not an attractive bike. Poorly pr proportioned on every level. Its headlights too high up. The body of it's too short and tall. It's one of those that looks like a cow taking a poop with its tail up and it's pooping. And have you ever seen those no bullshit symbols with the, the yeah. steers looking at you with its tail up? That's what most Yamahas look like, especially that SCR9. Well, anyway. So, geez, we go off traffic. I just on the hate, but bottom line is that it's a really good bike. They work really well, and if and you cheap. and if you kind of outfit it to be adventure bike, it so for me, you know, I love that type of shit. Yeah. It looks really cool. That bike, that bike probably costs less than ten grand. Yeah, because it's about eight grand for the FZ09 as a base, and they threw on some wheels, 
some some fendery it stuff. It might be a little bit more than that because doing a swing arm and I, I don't know. You could probably do it pretty cheap, but it was interesting it because was cool. they, it has to. Oh, you know what? That swing arm looked like it was stock. I think it's stock. It was just putting spoked wheels in it. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I don't think they did too much on the rear arm. There might be longer travel suspension forks. I don't have a lot of details on that build, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, it's worth going to Asphalt and Rubber. Check it out. Yeah, it's cool. It's a really cool thing. It got me super excited. If I saw a slightly crashed FZ09 on uh, Craigslist, it would make me think uh, real hard about Way it. better than a Super Tenere. Well, that's the thing. So, Way. So it makes 115 horsepower, I believe. I think the FZ09 makes about 115-ish, 110 Weighs like 400 and something, 420 pounds, 418 pounds wet. So yeah. like it starts making sense on a lot of levels. Now, I don't know how well it's going to crash. I don't know how many jumps you're going to be able to go over before like the headstock just accordions on itself. Who, <laughs> who knows? Because it's not built for that. No, sure. Not built for that. Yeah, you're right. But uh, neither is a Panigale, but I've managed 2000 mile Eastern Oregon rides on it. And it's still actually hold held up. It's good. Yeah, that's scary. TKC 80s, man. Can't believe I rode that thing. And not and and not like I just went on roads. Like that, no, that thing's no. seen some shit. Yeah. I wish I could frame the bash <laughs> like cards I made. What? It's like a minor. It's a minor. I really want to have sex with a minor. No, 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 no. A minor. Not a, not a minor. A minor. <laughs> like a guy that digs in the earth. <laughs> uh, that joke's never gonna get old. Thank you, Louis CK. Right. Um so so back to the back to the R6. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering how you were going to incorporate the minor joke. Meanwhile, <laughs> over in the uh, racetrack land, um, we were talking. <laughs> fuck, <man. laughs> We were talking about whether or not it's a cross plane or a flat plane crank. And I do. I think I tried to look at. Actually, I even I spent like an hour on this. I got the audio files out and I was trying to look at the waveforms to see if I could come up with some sort of pattern and. It was just too difficult with the way the bikes were revving and figuring out what was a crescendo from revs and what was the the pistons firing. But I do think I'm pretty convinced it's a flat plane crank. And there is a little bit of conjecture on the internet. I think Kent Knutsugu at Sport Rider was saying in his post that uh, they had a source saying it was just going to be an iteration of the current engine. So probably a little head work, probably the same. Yeah. Uh, bore and stroke design with you know some some stuff some tweaks and stuff and really with these bikes that they, they're so far up on the curve of plateaued efficiencies i mean you well, can't that was that was his argument was like the r6 is kind of crushing it in the 600 cc class so there's not really a big impetus to reinvent the wheel here but to get to get back to the point sorry to interrupt you but i'm trying to get us back to this 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 one point because i think it's really important it I, you know, if you have like 600cc engines revved to the fucking stratosphere and weird things start happening, the higher the RPMs go just in terms of sound. So, like, a cross-plane engine could sound yeah. very, very different than, say, how an R1 yeah. cross-plane would when it's revving at, at like, at 18,000 RPMs or something silly like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And that's why I said, at that so, RPM we're hearing. Little little asterisks there. Yeah. I, I think there is a potential for it, but eh, I wouldn't be surprised either way. I it, it, ta- it takes quite a bit of engineering to set up a crank to work as a cross plane. And I would imagine the forces that we're talking about are going up at exponential rates when we're revving it higher so a MotoGP, like say you r1 which target rpm is 11 12 13 thousand 
um, that they have to make the main bearings between the number one and number two cylinder and number three and number four, you know, X amount wider to, to deal with the cross plane. Yeah. Cause uh, I think, I think peak horsepower on the R1 occurs at 13.5. Yep. Redline's like probably 14 ish. Yep. Sure. So they do that. Well, imagine then doing that to 17. I mean, it, it's, it's seriously an exponent. Sure. Every a hundred yep. RPM is probably, a, a, a multiplier of force against it. So that's a lot, which means they might have to have changed quite a bit on the crankshafts and, and the and the webbing and the journals and the oil feeds and yada, yada, yada. I don't know, but that's the thing. That That's that's a thing, and it would be interesting to see if they did that. Because Lord knows, I've been saying for 20 years that the um, a Honda CBR600 that was a really a, an NC600, whatever, a, a V4, would be so rad, so rad. <sighs> but yeah, the Honda has no soul, and it takes too much money to make a, a bike like that. I mean, those engines are really hard to produce. Well, that's the thing that I think is interesting with the Super Sport class, and and you know, time will tell how how excited we get about the R6. I don't know. I'm a little reserved. I don't think it's going to be as big of a hit as the R1 was when it came out. The R1 debuted, and you know, people kind of lost their mind. I, I think. I think our post on the 2014 R1 was the most popular post ever in terms of traffic on huh. asphalt and rubber. Wow. I mean, people lost their mind. I don't think the R6 is going to be like that, especially if it's been built off the current design and truthfully could be more of the same like we saw with the Honda where it's just like, hey, it's the same old design we've been doing and we just kind of did some different things and gave it this and here and called it new and just took the, the easy route. Um, time will tell on that, but I think there, there is going to have to be a reckoning with the OEMs on how they approach the super sports. And I don't think we can continue having the 600 CC super sport class for sport bikes being just a watered down super bike class. Yeah. They're too close in price to the super bikes. If you're going to be of the argument that they're not selling well, I think the reason is because there's just too many alternatives that are very similar in price and in option and in use that have more you know if if we're still sitting here talking about like which which japanese oem 600s have traction control which which of them have all the cool engine brake control rossi slide control whammy blammy variable valves like none of that cool tech is trickling down into the super sport range because the super sport range is the watered down version of the superbike range so it's like okay so i could buy an r6 for I don't even know what the MSRP is, like 12, 13 grand. I'm going to buy an R1 for like 16 grand. I'm looking at like 20 bucks a month on my payment because everyone in the US buys everything on credit now. 20 bucks a month more. I think I'm going to get the one with all the fucking whistles and bells. I think, I think you're right in the sense like there needs to be a lower price point to help get new riders on these kind of bikes. My rebuttal is though. One, I don't think new riders should be on R6s, on 600cc <laughs> Super Sport. Not even by a long shot. But for a while, that was a de facto kind of thing. Like, oh, oh R6, no. great learner bike. Great bike to start out on, yeah. No, it's not. But it's not. And I think I think the industry needs to mature to that. And and that's where I kind of come back to the idea of, like, the for me in my head, there is there is a good argument that you, one, I don't think you can make a a, a compelling Super Sport for under ten grand anymore. I think those days are over. I think inflation's gone yeah, too high. Right. I think the the, right. the the market's just not there anymore. That's not FCO nine at eight thousand bucks. Great entry level bike. FCO seven I think is six grand. 
that's starting to get into those price points that that are perfect for new riders or people that that don't have access to credit or or, or whatever the reason is they just don't want to spend that much on a motorcycle i don't care whatever your reason is those are great bikes on budgets those are great budget bikes um but i think the r6 you just say hey let's let's stop making this the watered down r1 let's make it like the R1, but different. Let's let's hit a different point because at the end of the day, it's going to be some guy buying it on credit. It's going to be hopefully a, a more experienced rider, and maybe we can find a way for the super sport class to offer something different to riders that the superbike class doesn't. If the superbike class is going to be obsessed with making 200 plus horsepower bikes, let's make the super sport class a place for people who are obsessed by having bikes that weigh less than 350 pounds wet. I think that would be awesome and get get into high-tech materials composites uh interesting chassis designs it, it could be it could be a thing if the if the oems wanted it to i just don't think they're there yet in their mindset and i don't think the japanese are capable of being that avant-garde with their thinking right now especially not honda no no i don't i don't, I don't think so I, I just understand the dynamics how expensive it is to mass produce say the super legera oh. Right, that's <clears throat> that's some nasty. Even even a 1098R or 1198R, 1199R, all these bikes that have fairly special bits and pieces, just just little bits here and there. Titanium this, titanium that, well, carbon we, fiber this, carbon fiber that. So that's an interesting thing. I mean, we I, we I know we didn't really talk about bringing up the the Wazer and all that, but you know, I think it it makes an interesting, relevant point to what you're just saying. Like you know, those kind of manufacturing things. Those things are going to become affordable of time as we, especially as we make the technologies, the, the high tech technologies that are used in those kind of manufacturing procedures. When we start making those more affordable and more accessible and, and, and better. I mean, look how far rapid prototyping has come in the last decade. You know, it's so much better than it was when you were at Modus's to where it is now. That's going to start improving things where things like the Super can start being made. Maybe not on like a mass mass production level, but at least on a large larger. Yeah, I disagree that that'll have anything to do with it. Like an, a a super legere's cost would be let's magnesium. All right, so if they decided they want it's, it's frankly it's aluminum with magnesium content, but that's hideously expensive to procure and then machine or forge or whatever. So the wheels, the frame. That so on on that that's super lightweight. That's the key is the lightweight. If you wanted to do the the lightweight version of a any given uh, Japanese 600 cc, you'd have to start around there to figure out okay what where are where's the bulk of the weight on any given bike. And so you take off the forks and you say this forks are X amount. The frame is X amount. The engine is this amount. In the engine, what's the heavy part? Crankshaft is this amount. The cases are this amount. The transmission is this amount. The clutch is this amount. Right. So all the different pieces and parts. Aluminum fuel tank right off the bat very expensive right there there's just isn't a way around it uh the the forming of an aluminum fuel tank the welding of a fuel aluminum fuel tank it's just extremely different than the stamped steel and folded steel tanks that you see and have seen from the uh japanese now for 30 40 years right if you see the way there those there there's the uh, the ridge on the bottom of a, yeah it's right like a crimp that's just cramp yeah. it's it's yeah. it's simple it's it's very i i haven't seen the process but i guarantee you that's one thing that helps make as light as possible, um, as cheap as possible, casting techniques for subframes. Yamaha has been doing a pretty cool casting technique for a while. The R6 came out with it back in the day. It's like back year old die cast, something like that. Um, that gets weighed down pretty far. But, you know, at what point? Uh, 
electronic stuff in the in the wiring harn eye have gotten pretty heavy as surprisingly so but it has to be some of the bikes though say on the ducati side the bmw side they're using can bus systems so it reduces the amount of wire um which keeps the 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 weight down but then they have seven ecus which goes back up to the weight because then you have these ecus and abs systems that cause right so it'd be cool to see the breakdown of what is like we should do that sometime what is the breakdown of a, of a modern sport bike where where is the weight and where can you take That'd it be out? interesting because i have a not quite modern sport bike, but fairly modern sport bike downstairs that needs to be taken apart and given yeah, some love. Yeah, and if we did a piece by piece, and frankly, there's probably data out there. People have weighed R1 engines, right? Sure. We know how much the R1 engine weighs. Uh, <clears throat> thinking about the forks on a on a Panigale base model, standard model of Panigale, the, the Marzocchi aluminum, aluminum forks, right? So the aluminum internal tubes and external tubes, which were really light, Um that's an interesting thing. Like, what, where, where did that matter that much? Not really. Well, you said something interesting when, with the um, with the ECUs, and I was I was around the shop the other day, and I was watching one of the techs pull something apart, and he's like, "Oh yeah, this is the secondary ECU, and this is the the yeah. primary ECU, and blah blah blah." There's blah, an blah. engine ECU, a, uh, the BBS, which is a, a black box system in the Ducati world. That's the secondary, and it's just another ECU to do but things. That's that's the thing that's so funny for me because I look at those; they're just computers. They're just computers. And I sit there and like, this is what kills me about the motorcycle industry. We're so behind the time. Like I was just looking the other day. Do you know what a Raspberry Pi is? <laughs> now, am I going to wankle to this? <laughs> so, so this is, this is where our nerdiness diverges. A Raspberry Pi is a cheap, cheap computer, basically on a circuit board. And you can buy it. There's one, there's a version out now for $5. And it's and it's literally a computer that's the size of like a graham cracker, but it's like it's like bare bones. It's like a processor. It's a very rudimentary video chip, and you know you basically have to. The, the whole point of it was for hobbyists. You you then have to turn it into a functional computer. Yeah, you can buy like boxes and there's like projects, but the whole thing is like it's such a small form factor computer that you can make some really interesting yeah. things out of them. You can use them for very interesting things. But the sad part is, is like I would wager, and I don't know this for a fact, so I'm, so I'm talking a little bit out of my ass here. But I would wager that that $5 computer, Raspberry Pi, has more processing power than the ECU juggernauts that are being thrown into these bikes because the computer and the electronic systems in these machines are so many fucking decades behind the times. And I remember talking to Pierre Treblanche about, like, you know, the, the, the systems that are in automobiles are about five to ten years behind what, like, is in your cell phone. And then the motorcycle industry is about five to ten years behind the automotive industry. Yep, but you like you think like your iPhone probably has more processing power than like your Panigale. And you sit there and you're just like just from just a computational point of view, that boggles my mind. But then we sit here and we talk about like how much weight that is. Like, yeah. There's probably like twenty pounds in unnecessary computer and electronic equipment because we're just not using the latest and greatest technology that's out or, there. Or yeah, and I from from what I've seen, there's there's some complexity to it that lies in component manufacturers and saying, okay, we're gonna have a Magneti Morelli system on this bike. Well, that has to work with the Brembo system, sure, and an interface, well, and that's, and that's, right? And that's part of the whole like we gotta get this box here to talk to that box there, yeah. And it's not a completely streamlined system. Right? No, nope. I get that. Yep. I get that, and that is a problem. So that's one of the reasons why there are these on, uh, especially on the Ducati, because you've got. Magneti on a bunch of bikes. Bosch, like not just 
not just the um, ABS, ABS, but the, the the fuel system as well on yet other bikes. Mainly, yeah, I, don't, I don't think people realize like how much stuff Bosch makes. Oh yeah, Bosch is amazing. Yeah. So and what, but you know the new Multistrada DVT, the uh, variable valve timing engine, has a Bosch system instead of a Magnetti Morelli system, which is what they had been using. And then the Panigale has has the old. Oh geez, now I'm not forgetting, but I'm pretty sure it's the Mitsubishi one. This is this is something that's happening. I think that that consumers don't realize there's there's basically it comes back to platforms. It's this theory of platform systems, and and Bosch is coming out with a multi-faceted line of platforms. It's like so it's like hey, you can use our ABS system and our fuel injection system. We have a ride by wire system, and then we have a, a traction control protocol and da 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 da. Like they have a suite of electronics that OEMs can choose from. Sweet. And then you have Magneti Morelli and you have Mitsubishi yeah. and you have like a couple other companies that are out there current kind of offering these things. And it's still kind of a, um, a fractured market. So and, you might and, see a little mixing and matching. And going eventually on. I think it will, the you know, it's Occam's razor. The simplest solution to the problem is the best. So let me pause you there because we got a listener question about ABS okay. and I think this we might play it. And I okay. think we're going to, Stir some stuff that's still kind of percolating. So let me stir it up. Stir it up. Hit the buttons here. This is 90% not going to work. Hi, guys. This is Craig from Michigan. I really enjoyed the recent discussion on front versus rear braking on the track. Would you guys ever consider doing a whole episode on analog brakes? Among my riding pals, there's a lot of debate about the merits of ABS. We know that Europe's got mandatory ABS, yet much of the U.S. doesn't even require you to wear a helmet. So obviously there's huge regional differences in, uh, in belief about ABS. So I'd like to hear your perspectives. So could you bring that on? Thanks. So first off, thank you, Craig, from Michigan for, for sending us in a message and doing it with an audio file because that's awesome. Um, ABS. ABS is is interesting and i think you and i have the same opinion on this quentin where oh yeah tell me what that is what is your opinion well it's just especially with modern abs is so good now i think it should be standard on every single bike it's seamless and it has been now for a long time but again i've been in the ducati realm where it's been seamless since about 2011 right 2010 they they came out with a pretty good system on the multistrada but it had to be updated uh, almost immediately because it was too well, intrusive. Ducati didn't, but Bosch did. Yeah, sure. <laughs> right. But that's what I'm saying. Ducati had specced out the feeling that they wanted to get out of that. And right. Bosch said, oh, oh, you need that turned up a little bit. Okay. And they yeah. did that and they had a protocol and there was a, a recall. And we it's had to get software. So yeah. it's just, and it's as, it's as simple as, as reprogramming. So from that point, I would say every single ABS system that's been on every single Ducati is so seamless. I challenge Anybody to tell me that it's working, that they that they think that it's not, like they don't use it, bullshit. I bet it's worked on your bike multiple times. You don't even know it. Yeah, because I know that it happened to me <clears throat> while I was in kind of the, I would say, a testing phase. And I had gotten on track with the multi before it was uh, sussed out. And I had actually, at the sales training um, in Austin, Texas, back in 2010, I spent three or four days in a row doing 200 or something miles a day uh, guiding people around on those bikes. And I got to know the bikes intimately well at that time. 
And they, the ABS came on really, really early, really easily all the time, right? And it was an interesting thing, but it was still freaking badass. And not only a couple months later, I was at Road America on the thing, just impressed all the way, like yeah. being able to get ABS to come on front and rear, going threshold breaking in the turn five at Road America on a Multistrada. It's a harrowing experience that I wished everybody could have felt. And then riding bikes that had been updated for now five six years uh panagales uh, off-road my multistrada on-road off-road hyperstratas hypermotards all of it and and it's just amazing it works really well whereas early 2000s a bmw or even ducati weren't quite there i know that most of the people that have a ducati st4s abs from the early 2000s loved it and had no issue with it because it was good then it's been interesting to watch this technology evolve and i think i think to go back to to craig's comment i think a lot of the anti-abs people are rooted in in just kind of the past because 10 years ago abs was like you said it was it was a lot more rudimentary it would add 10, 15 pounds to the bike. Now, all the bikes you just listed, all the modern Ducatis, are probably using the Bosch. I believe it's the 9MS Plus, which is, I think it adds like 1.8 pounds it's to teeny. the... It adds, yeah. It, it, it's a, teeny. It adds about two pounds to the motorcycle. It uh, has dual channel control, which means it, it actuates the front and the rear brakes independently, so you can turn off yep. the rear wheel for, yep. for adventure bikes or... Like Track my, my, uh, my hyper has, has that so I can turn off the rear wheel so I can lock the rear wheel like an idiot when I'm running around town. Um, and then the, they've gotten very good at the software. What's interesting when I interviewed Claudio Domenicali earlier this year, he called the cornering ABS, this Bosch, it's called the technical name is the Bosch MSC motorcycle safety control. Everyone else knows it more as the cornering ABS. He called that the most important safety feature to come out in the last 10 years. And I believe it. Because it is doing for the front wheel what traction control was doing for the rear wheel. Yeah. You can you can basically f- apply 100% full braking pressure at 100% lean. Well, not 100% lean, but you know, the, you can crank that bike all the way over to its side, grab the f- a fistful of brake and not talk the front end now because it's it's incorporating not only these hyper accurate, hyper sophisticated ABS actuators now with an IMU, which can sense the lean and the motion of the bike in six axes and say, hey, what's the bike doing as we're braking? Okay, reduce the brake just a little bit because you're about to tuck the front and keep you right on that threshold where you're applying as much braking force as possible without the bike dropping, basically. Yep. And that's huge. That's huge. So... I'd be very curious to hear with, with Craig's writing group or oh, what the anti-ABS guys have to say about stuff like that because it's it's night and day to what we saw when it was coming out from, I think Honda had a very interesting system back about a decade ago when they were linking what they called C-ABS, the combined brakes, where you would uh, get a certain amount of rear braking pressure when you applied the front brake and uh-huh. vice versa. And it was yeah. kind of a weird thing and people didn't like it and you couldn't disengage it. And it was just heavy rah. and clunky and weird. And yeah. And it was just, it was in truthfully, like I can understand why people were getting a little shitty about it, even though I think there were still advantages to be had on the roadway. Like we've got one turn here on McLaughlin and it is just pothole gravel city. And, and, and you have to come off this, this road, which is about 45 mile an hour road and pretty congested. And, and, and there's just typical Portland fashion, no room or no real shoulder, no real lane 
to, to merge in or out of traffic. So you have to go from 45 down to about five, 10 miles an hour to make this like cranked right-hand turn. If you're in a Mercedes E350 formatic, you can still do it at about 35 and it slides all around the corner and it's excellent. Yeah, it, I mean, it's a fun turn, <laughs> but I will tell you, I have a lot more confidence going to that turn on my hyper that has ABS yeah, than I do my oh, street yeah. fighter because absolutely depending on what the, and right now it's under construction too so depending on like what the construction control oh, was dude. doing that day there could be marbles and gravels and whatever in that turn that you don't even know oh, about. that the pothole that's getting worse mid-corner yeah. i know i take the same one very often and it's it's harrowing for sure right it's, it's nasty and and that's where like i sit there and i'm like why wouldn't you want abs in that kind of situation or you come around that turn and fluid has been dropped diesel has been dropped oil has been dropped there's gravel from the the cliffs in the way like the there's no reason i think now to be like oh, i don't want aps i don't have there, there was though and what the reason why was you'd get on like one of those bmws from the early 2000s that had the i think they call it servo actuated you would if you got on the bike and didn't have the key on you'd you'd grab the front brake it would nearly go back to the bar right so first yeah. off it's disconcerting you turn the bike on and there would be this very strange clunky noise that goes on and then you get going and the the abs is flashing at you until you get to a certain mile an hour then it works. Then it's okay. But even then, it was not confidence-inspiring. The brakes felt fucking awful on any BMW from that late 90s, early 2000s. They just felt like shit. I'd also say, like, the brake feel between my Hyper and my Street Fighter, my Street Fighter feels so much better because it doesn't have to go through an ABS yeah, pump. Yeah, sure, thing. sure. So there is a little bit to be said there. Yeah, even but in not modern like times, that much. Not that bad, but it is still it is something in, I notice when I jump from one bike to the other. Keep in mind, dude, your Street Fighter has... Pie plate 330 millimeter discs. It's that is a different system. And it's got different pads. Right. It's a much better braking system in general. So that's that adds to it. So if you feel the brakes on a I, an A48 Street Fighter, it feels a lot more like your Hyper because that has the smaller d discs that don't have quite as an aggressive pad. I noticed it on mine right off the bat. The, that, that 1098 Street Fighter is a triple black diamond bike, not just because of the power, but also because of the brakes. It's really, they're nasty. The they're brake. really good. Yeah. They are race spec. And they even to this day, that's a race spec thing. That's just wanted to make sure that was clear because I, but I can see having been an owner of a Street Fighter now on this multi that I've an older multi with just really ancient brakes, but they're excellent. And that's one thing I said after riding on the track recently. It's like, with all this technology, I'm not saying it's plateaued, but I can threshold brake just as nasty as I can with anything else with these single piece steel rotors bolted straight to the wheel instead of with a carrier on this bike that's, that was designed in the early 2000s. And I still get the great front end feel because frankly, a lot of it is tires. A lot of people think brakes is all about the brakes themselves and the rotors and the discs. And yeah. a lot of it can be just down the tires braking, and how good they brake. Braking technology has surpassed tire technology. Yeah. And we're watching tires catch up. And it's always been this kind of back and forth. The brakes would get better. Then the tires would have to get better. And then the brakes would get better. And the tires would get better in response. So we're watching that play, unfold. And that's know, chassis as well. There's there's a, a, a lot of people don't give credit to the how the chassis functions to to dampen the force that's that's being forced to the front of the bike and um to the rear so there's things called top out springs and a lot of people don't consider this you think you have a suspension that has a a spring in the front and a spring in the rear and that's 
that's what's holding the bike up is those springs. It's true. <laughs> spring in the rear. Spring in the rear. <laughs> wankle in the rear. <laughs> wankle in the rear. Um, Don't want to wankle in the rear. You no, know, they're only what you'd have. That's to a buy. Friday night. Well, that's a TLR. TLR had a wankle like a rotary. It did. A rotary, oh, I never thought about that. Rotary ah, damper. Totally I, I don't know if we, we can't call it a rotary though. We can't call that a wankle. Um, so the that transfer then uh, at the top of the when the when the spring fully extends. There's actually yet another little spring on internally on a lot of good shocks that helps keep the wheel from bouncing and or, uh, uh, I don't know how to describe top out springs. It's such a difficult thing. It's really gnarly because it, well, it, there'll be an oscillation. It's, it, it's dampening it's, a lot. It's, it's trying to help dampen the oscillation and keep but it not from through being, fluidic dampening through spring dampening. Yeah. And that's a, that's a tough one. That's so a whole other thing. that threshold breaking AMA road racing that top out spring change uh, was huge. Well, how we would adjust that and how we would make it work mainly for threshold braking at on the rear shock, but it was also on the front. As you're accelerating out of the corner, you would not necessarily want it to just go to a bump stop um, at full extension. You want it to kind of meh uh, just as you're accelerating out. How, and, how would it go? Meh. Okay. Right? And so the same, same kind of meh. Uh, might be transferred into some of these new new shocks and forks, and that's one thing that can help with braking, and a lot of people don't consider. So it's not just the the discs, it's not just the the master cylinder, but the master cylinder makes a huge difference. I don't know if you ever rode a mid two thousands six seven five Triumph, but they had this shit bag Nissan <laughs> master cylinder. It's like made no sense whatsoever why it was so bad. But it was a shit bag. It was horrible. And a lot of the bikes from that era, I think Jixer, some Jixer had it. And everybody would always take the Brembo system, the OEM bespoke Brembo Yamaha, and retrofit it to like a Jixer 1000 from the mid-2000s is excellent, except for the brakes. Back to the ABS thing, though. If you can switch them on and off, so that's most of the bikes that Ducati makes. I'm sure with the BMW, maybe it's a, even. It's a lot of bikes now. I just saw it on the Honda. It, it's so many bikes that I don't think it's excusable when I find a bike that doesn't have it. Like on the MT, or sorry, not the MT, the FZ10. Why can't you turn the ABS off the rear wheel? I don't understand it. Why didn't that system's there? It's available. It's ubiquitous. What's up? Yeah. the I just noticed on a Honda Africa Twin that came to the shop today, was looking at it because I... I kind of feast my eyes on every one of those that comes in. I really want one. And I saw the button on the dash. It was just so a, cool. Just a button on a dash. You just now the downside, have to think about that. You do have to think about it. Every time every you turn the bike fucking on. Every time you turn the bike okay. off, it resets every fucking thing okay. you did. Yeah. And you got to like spend like nine minutes just plucking. It's not buttons. as bad as the Super Tenere though, is it? I'm trying to remember how you do it on the Super Tenere. It's I can't bad. Remember. I know I've heard that it's bad, or it was in the beginning. So all those, that's stupid when I I know that I can get on any given Multistrada, Hyperstrada, Hypermotard, Panigale, 959, 899, 1299, all of those. And I wonder you, why people think that we're very Ducati-centric on this show. No, wonder. But you can <laughs> get on any one of those, set the mode set up, get, get it figured out, and this no, side it of, remembers it. Yeah, this side of uh, having a battery, and some of them keep keep the knowledge with even taking a battery out. So, I I, ju I do find it inexcusable, but that's why the the euros are at the sharp end. I don't know what the KTM does. I'm pretty sure the KTM's similar because you can turn the rear wheel off on the on the KTM for and sure. It'll stay that I'm way. trying to remember if it stays that way or not. Uh, Either way, the fact yeah. is it probably does, and that's great, right? And you know that that the, they they understand that they aren't scared of the legal ramifications of it, whatever it is, right? But I, I don't, I don't, I can't imagine somebody. 
not wanting to ride with ABS other than that they learned or saw one of these bikes from 20, 10 years, even 10 years ago, and are basing all of their knowledge on that. Like that, that's all their knowledge is that system from the BMW or maybe even a Ducati or you name whatever bike and saying, oh, well, that was the one I rode that that means all ABS systems are, are shitty. Right? And, there's, and there's one thing I got I to gotta inject there. Like you and I ride a lot of bikes. And I mean that in the sense of we're on constantly yeah. an evolution of models. Yeah. So I can see yeah. the evolution of change. My reference point is year to year. Whereas I think for some motorcyclists, it's probably the reference point is is decade between to their decade. Bi- well, between their bike purchases. So it's like whenever they last bought a new bike. And it's like that when I get in like... um it's fun when I get like in rental cars and stuff because my my car is now just over a decade old and like I'll hop into a new car. So like I don't have Bluetooth in my car. I have a mini stereo jack in my car to play my phone, which now like you know the yeah. iPhone doesn't even have that anymore. Yeah. And so it's always fun to like see me like when I get in like a new in a rental car that's new and you see like oh like this is what cars have standard now and this is how they are and like look how crazy this dash is and. It's interesting to see just like the technological progress there. And that's, that's how often I touch it where I, I can see like if the last time you hopped on an ABS bike was in like 2000. Yeah. I'd be shitty about ABS too. But if you haven't had the luxury of hopping on a bike in 2000 and 2005 and 2010 and 2015, you probably haven't seen the progression then that these machines have made because man, you take like an Aprilia RSV4. I remember being at Thunder Hill and just leaving it just just the stock like as shipped yeah as shipped and i remember doing i shaved like three seconds off my best lap time there on like my third lap on that bike with all the abs on i remember going i'm trying to remember the name of the turn it's the second to last turn before you get back on the main straight and it's another like hard on the brakes turn right hand turn and the abs kicks on and and i'm sitting there i'm like race abs bitchin and that just I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm always impressed with the RC4 because it's just such a bitching bike, even in it's like, I'm going to take care of you in a nanny sort of way, you know, yeah. just like, I'm just going to call you little, like a little Jensen baby. I'm just going to call you right <laughs> through this turn. Oh, you're so cute. Oh, you're so very cute. difficult to do that, by the way. Right. Well, I'm a big guy. Yeah. Yeah. Very difficult. <laughs> I'm I've tried. Me. I've tried. It doesn't work. Well, that's why I got a king size bed. We can get that, <laughs> get that cuddle on. So, so back to, back to Craig's comment, because there was one thing that I thought he brought up that was really interesting was talking about how basically ABS is mandated by law in Europe now and has been for a couple of years now, I believe. I'm trying to think, 2015 was the first year? It doesn't matter. It's it's mandated by law that all bikes in Europe have to have ABS. Whereas like here we are in America still talking about like, do we have to wear helmets or not? <laughs> and I think there is like a little bit of a safety perspective and and I think there's a little bit of difference in, in government and perspective and, and culture around motorcycles that's involved there. But it's interesting to see, like, I feel like there's the same pushback from, like, American motorcyclists to ABS as there are to, like, helmets and rider <laughs> yeah, aids sure. and all this other stuff. They're taking stuff. away my freedom to crash. Right? There is a little bit of that, like, I don't need, because that's the argument I hear Nanny. sometimes, like, I don't need ABS. I'm I'm a good enough motorcyclist that I, I can save the crash and I can feel when the front end's going and I know what to do in that situation. And it's like, eh, Complete bullshit. Yeah, I really don't think so, because I'm a pretty good motorcyclist, and sometimes, like, I get in that front wheel in, in places that it doesn't need to be, and ABS saves my butt. Uh, with that said, there is something to be said for having ultimate control, and I get it. So, say, somebody said, hey, we're going to put ABS on your dirt bike. 
and, and make it work, like it, make it functional, then it's just, it's almost as bad as my two-wheel drive system or a recluse clutch, which I don't have, but I kind of would temp- be tempted to because it'd be like super easy. So there's things that make riding easier. And this is one of those things that I I can see the point of the people that are hardcore and they're, the, but that's those people also would want a bike that doesn't shift or, or that, you know, they would want the bike that shifts instead of the electric bike or the, you know what I mean? There's a, there's a, well, I mean, I guess it comes back to what you're looking for from motorcycles. Are you looking for something that's going to test your manhood? I'm using that in quotes because obviously if you're a woman, it's not that quite a thing, but sometimes I think it's like a giant just dick measuring contest. It's like, how big is your wankle? I can ride a bike without ABS and I don't yeah. need rider aids and none of yeah. this. And look how, yeah. look how fucking butch I am. And like, all right, chief, that's great. But I really think the reason you get on your motorcycle is because there's just a certain experience you have on two wheels that you don't get in four and it can take you places that a car can't. And it's a different thing. I don't think it, I don't think motorcycling is defined by the rider aids. And if it is defined by the rider aids for you, then I kind of worry that you're just leading a boring life. Well, I, you probably didn't see it, but I posted up a picture on the Two Enthusiasts Facebook page of this contraption that somebody had built out of a Moto Guzzi that has a windscreen. I did see that. Yeah. Okay, a windscreen today, yeah. and a roof and you, a bunch of other shit. And it's like, all right. I <laughs> had a windshield wiper. Kyle, and with Kyle a windshield pointed wiper. out the windshield Absolutely. wiper. Absolutely, windshield wiper. Up. So uh, that, that for me is taking the piss on motorcycles. That's like, okay. It's almost not a motorcycle. That that person does have to lean. You have a two-wheeled car. Yeah, but they have to lean. Okay, they have to lean. And they have to keep it balanced. I, I get that. That is still motorcycle. But really, at, at, at what point could you just... Why don't you just buy a freaking Ural or, or a car and, or whatever it is that... No, no one should buy a Ural. Well, you know. No one should buy a Ural. I don't know. Two-wheel drive. Unless like you're that. like... The only reason you should buy a Ural, I feel like buying a Ural is like learning a foreign language. Like to do it right... You need to immerse yourself in the culture and immerse yourself. Like, like if you want to learn French, you should go live in Paris and live in the ninth arrondissement and, and just soak that shit up like a sponge. If you want to become a mechanic, you should buy a Euro because <laughs> you're going to have to learn how to completely take a motorcycle apart and put it back together at least once or twice over the course of ownership of that thing. Yeah. And, and the course of ownership would be the first thousand miles. <laughs> right. Right. Cause then you realize what a horrible fucking mistake you made. And you're like, I got to get myself like a bike that wasn't designed for world war two. <laughs> uh, and then copied and then copied by a bunch of Russians in Siberia <laughs> who made it by candlelight because the factory loses power, like on a weekly basis. Uh, I don't have that poor of an opinion of them. I rode one a couple years ago and I enjoyed it. They're I'd, cool and they're different and they're neat. I would never touch one with a 10. I, I unfortunately know too many stories about them failing prematurely in weird ways, like really weird that are like, Oh, come on. You should have spec that part out better ways. Right. Well, I just like the fact that like, if you go on like the year old forums and you talk to your owners, like, Oh yeah, well wait, you just have to do this, 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 and this, and this, and this, and then it's really well sorted out. Uh-huh. And like, you look at that list, you're like, you mean just rebuild the bike Yeah, and just replace a bunch of like basic bolts that and parts have been, that yeah, shouldn't have been there. Sure. Okay. Bearings and things that should have been so, like, specced out once, better. Once you remake, once you remanufacture this motorcycle that you paid like 10 grand or whatever for, then it'll run great. I don't know. They I should want- just come in kit. And that will probably would be the That'd best That'd be kind of cool. It. Just be sure. like just giant Legos. There was something the other day. Oh, someone, you know, Ducati does those those pictures where they have like all the parts on the ground. Uh-huh. And it was like, it was for the Scrambler. And I think it was the guys at Syllodrome, which is a great blog. If you don't read it, you should. And they're just like, they should come like this. They should come as like a kit. 
And I kind of agree with that sometimes, like, because I played with Legos as a kid, and it was that was a lot of fun. I just look at this like as it's a, all I do as it's adult Legos, and it's sure. just like here's your kit, and just kind of build it. That would be cool. I was explaining to somebody recently that I was looking around at the shop, uh, and realized that I'm I'm just like when I was five years old playing with my Hot Wheels cars in a sandbox, lining them up and putting them, you know, grouping them by certain groups or playing whatever I did. Was playing with you were segregating and your, was, your, your I, matchbox I was, cars. I was segregating them. It's very racist of you. <laughs> Mechanicist. Whatever okay. we said earlier, we had a word for Mach- it. Machinist? Machinist. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a machinist. All right. So that I was thinking about how much I just play with toys. And then I think about my past 20 years of taking them apart, putting them back together. My have my A48 completely apart, putting back together over and over and over. And that's, yeah, it's exactly what I do. Would that be a, would that be added value if you knew that you could buy a bike to put, oh my God, the, I could just think of lawyers. lawyers. The lawyer and you just would have to. Well, again, it comes back to like, we talked about this on the, the Oedipus Rex show, like motorcycling is ultra hazardous. Yeah, it's sure. this assumption of risk. Like, Hey, you built the fucking thing. So you're the best gauge of how good of a mechanic you are. Like if I built my motorcycle to ride, like I'm probably going to die. I'm just not that gifted at turning wrenches. Right. And I know I'm, 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 I know enough that I'm dangerous. And I know that even if I did, I'd still leave something fucked up. Right. And I'm a, I'm a professional and I, I know that would probably be, I would, I would have to take a few quick jaunts before I would go out on the big thousand mile jaunt. You see what I mean? If I'm building down tests, well, that's what you do. Like when I build my 48 race bike, I I would be a dumbass to just immediately go out without doing shakedown stuff at a track day. Um, It's just the way it should be. You, you, you you have just done an incredibly complicated thing. Even if you've done it a hundred times, all the more reason to be more careful about it. What's this crowdsourced car thing? I'm trying to remember the name of it. Do you know what I'm talking about? It looks like a um, local motors. Yeah. It's the rally fighter. Yep. And you can like the base kit, like it's like, it's like 90 grand for this thing. And at 90 grand, you show up in Arizona and like build your car. And they've got like, you know, some master tech guys that help you build your car, but you are building your car. You're not just like standing around watching some yeah, guy turn wrenches That's really for cool. You. I love it. But at the same time, 90 grand is the cost. It's brutal. Is it 130 grand if it's new? It's like, yeah. Okay. Well, that's pretty, because that's interesting. I love that. I'd love to be able to do that, to put together something where there's certain components you have to build on the bike before you put it all back. Yeah. Forks. Okay. You're going to have to put these forks together. Okay. Engine. You're going to have to put this. That be or cool? maybe not. Maybe you have the the forks as a unit, the engine as a unit, the, the major big nasty things that you don't need a lot of super specialized things. And you just have the frame, the forks as a unit, the triple clamps, blah, 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 blah. Wheels. Yeah. And then put it together. Yeah. Right. I think that would be good. I think that there's something to be said about that because then that gets the owner acquainted and and ready to do basic maintenance on like now you know how to drop the forks out of the triple clamps if you ever needed to take your forks in to get serviced for sure. like a seal or yeah, whatever sure. now you know how to take a chain on and off and service the wheels and take the wheels off and yep. take the fuel tank off you need to drain the fuel like the basic like stuff beyond just changing the oil kind of maintenance like it gets you kind of like more familiar and get your hands low dirty which can be interesting i don't expect any oem to do that but it'd be interesting. Yeah, that's a very thought-provoking, too enthusiast thing. Yeah, so just sit on there and chew it. You know, the best part of it all, after you've got it mm. completely put together, oh, yeah, I don't, is putting that kickstand up and going down the, the road. Yeah, put the, getting that kickstand, that's, that's a good one. Yeah. That's great. That's great. It's a good get, thing get our to, kickstands up, just, do some wanking, wankling later on. Be on the wankle and just 
Just every fucking time with the quick kicks in. I just, I just yeah. don't know about this whole thing. I was going to shout out to one of the, I can't remember his name now. Talking about the AMA thing is like, how, what are their what are their uh, opinions? <laughs> the of, AMA stance on kickstand. <laughs> they like it. Huh? Pro kickstand. So yeah, thank you for that. Whoever you that uh, answered on the uh, asphalt and rubber webpage. All right, good talk. See you out there <laughs> later. Uh, a sweet Isuzu Impulse, and then a hand me down another car, which was a sweeter Honda Del Sol, and just. Right? Can you imagine me in that Del Sol, dude? I, I just did. And oh, like your wind my, blowing in dude, the... Your I would hair get, blowing in the wind. I was such a decoy in that car with my hair down. <laughs> I I had <laughs> multiple, multiple big rig trucks. Uh, uh, I'll be like, it's a dude. <laughs> you, you there's, this, there's this video on YouTube and it's this guy and he's like in the parking lot like near like a gym in L.A. But he puts on like leggings <laughs> and, he, and he just bends over in his trunk and he wakes for like other dudes to come by and like check him out. And he like pops up like, hey, dude, are you looking at my butt? Are you looking at my legs? What are you doing? And just the reactions, like nine times out of ten, the, the other guy's reaction was to try to punch him. It was just like, how dare you try to make me <laughs> yes. think you're a hot chick? Yes, I was a- trying to objectify you and now you ruined it. <laughs> Yeah, so needless to say, the Del Sol was a decoy <laughs> car. You know when he wankles your ruins? <laughs> uh, boy, can you imagine me in a RX-7? I'd be wankling all over the uh. place. <laughs> <laughs> That's one for Jensen.